Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Boy, it sounds like a lot we're doing tonight, but it's really not that. And then there'll be, <laughs> there'll be time for you to ask questions, then we'll be done, and all of that will somehow be packed into an action-packed hour and 15 minutes. Or actually not action-packed, because you'll just be watching a neurotic Jewish Buddhist sit here and yabber on for a while. <laughs> but I'll do my best. So the... Uh, there's a, a very strong attachment component to uh, social anxiety. We're all born with a core drive to connect with uh, caregivers for protection and security. We're all born with uh, brains that essentially are set up to seek ongoing connection and to uh, ensure that connection by vulnerably disclosing our emotions to others which signal our needs and uh, to the degree that we get secure caregiving or attention in our earliest years establish attachment patterns or what's known clinically as internal working models they're, they're synonymous internal working models are your underlying emotional expectations of how you uh, expect others to treat you and how worthy of love and care you uh, believe you are. So uh, we all have these internal working models that are set very, very young. If we get reliable or secure attachment, which means a caregiver who's pretty good, uh, they don't have to be by any means perfect. They just have to... Uh, uh, in a reliable pattern, uh, be available and be capable of understanding a child's needs and be able to recognize various different emotions. And to the degree we get that, um, we grow up with an internal working model of being deserving of love and expecting others to treat us well and expecting others to be trustworthy, and therefore we relax around other people, and we don't worry about how we're particularly perceived in novel situations. Interestingly enough, the longitudinal studies of individuals with secure attachment uh, score very, 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 very low on social anxiety. In fact, to such a low degree that uh, it's an excellent predictor of who and who will not have just by the security of their attachment. So I, when I talk about secure adults, I'm, I often feel like I'm talking about these fantasy beings that I never meet <laughs> because my work is, uh, and very happily so, meeting with people who have anxious, avoidant, or disorganized attachment. But there are out there, uh, and uh, apparently... Uh, <laughs> they actually represent about one out of every two people, 50%, uh, and sometimes even higher, depending upon which countries 
tend to score uh, secure. So uh, none of them are probably here right now, but <laughs> no, some of you are, I'm sure. Um, so avoidant attachment are people who essentially got such poor attention and uh, such they felt their caregivers to be emotionally uh, unpredictable or emotionally uh, incongruous with their own emotional state. So the child, interestingly enough, uh, essentially gives up on getting uh, truly taken care of by the parent and minimizes its needs. And one of the ways they do that is by essentially blunting awareness of their own emotions because the less emotional they are, the less they need other people. So uh, avoidance tend to be uh, extremely capable of essentially self-numbing their fear, their sadness, their loneliness, and so forth. These are people who find others to be untrustworthy, <laughs> who have a very strong sense of their own value, but tend to deprioritize intimacy. And uh, they fear being engulfed or entrapped or committed to others. They are intimacy-averse. And um, they find gatherings to be difficult because they feel claustrophobic easily, and they very often uh, dream of getting away from having to listen to other people be vulnerable around them. It, uh, gatherings, if they do develop strategies, very often it's based on uh, forms of grandiosity. They feel more comfortable talking about themselves than listening to other people. Uh, anxious, preoccupied individuals grow up with caregivers who sometimes were available and sometimes weren't. There was no reliable pattern. Uh, love was defined as something you have to chase after and you have to settle for living off crumbs of attention. Uh, anxious individuals tend to feel they have to do all the work. They become very preoccupied by how, what their partners or attachment figures are thinking about them. These are people who actually think highly of others and think very, have very low self-regard for themselves. They tend to have a damaged um, sense of self. Core shame is a very strong indicator. And these are people who want to uh, get to know lots of people at gatherings, but very often are self-conscious and expect others to be evaluating them negatively um, because of their own core shame. They tend to come into social gatherings with a sense that there's something wrong or damaged with me that other people will see unless I'm extremely uh, watching everything I say or do. And finally, disorganized attachment uh, people who felt a degree of fear at the hands of caregivers who were emotionally dysregulated. And these are people that uh, very often are, gravitate towards manipulative or abusive relationships and run away from secure relationships. And at parties, they will wind up connecting with the most emotionally dysregulated drunk character and will not gravitate towards people who are uh, safer. In every case where there's insecure attachment, which is again roughly 50%, the core attachment styles are actually indicative in the way that we hold our bodies. The right hemisphere, which stores our attachment patterns, is far more embodied of the two 
bilateral structures in the brain. Our expectations of others is conveyed less by thought, like, oh, this person's not going to like me, or this person's going to judge me, or this person's instantly going to be emotionally uh, too much, I just want to get away, or this person's exciting because they're so damaged. <laughs> we won't... Uh, we won't gravitate to people by what we think. It's a physical sense. So somebody who's got core shame, who has anxious attachment, who expects rejection or abandonment, will go into social gatherings immediately with all these somatic states. Somatically, they'll become essentially tight. They're Stomach will lock, their shoulders will tighten, the chest will become contracted. Uh, people who will have avoided attachment will also get into more locked off, I want to fight states of being. They want to essentially push away people. Disorganized go into the most protected, you know, they avoid eye contact very frequently. They have hunched over Shoulders, they expect almost, uh, they carry around bodies that are almost set up to defend themselves. So there's different, uh, as the great Pat Ogden, she's uh, one of my heroes, talks about literally the body or uh, somatically we carry around almost all of our emotional wounds. And from the body, our behaviors, our emotions uh, flow. And uh, so we'll be talking a little bit in the, uh, about how important it is to address embodied states as a way to uh, deal with social anxiety. Now, there's certain, though, behaviors that actually make social anxiety worse. They start out as adaptive because as children, we think these behaviors help us survive, and very often they do which is why they're called maladaptive. All maladaptive behaviors, by definition, started off as something that helped us survive our childhoods. A good example being uh, the first kind of behavior, which is avoidance coping. A child that anticipates conflict with a parent or anticipates a subject will, be, will lead to some form of shame or rejection or uh, some form of criticism or judgment will naturally avoid talking about that issue or avoid encountering the parent in the hopes that it will go away. It's a natural strategy. We all try to survive our childhoods. Unfortunately, the brain doesn't have any, mo have any uh, region in it that says, okay, we're now adults. I'm going to switch off that behavior. Now I'm going to be interacting with other adults, and if I keep on relying on avoidance coping, uh, people will eventually give up on having lasting relationships with me. So avoidance coping in adult life can be things like simply avoiding all social gatherings. Some people do uh, ghosting where they agree to go to social gatherings and then don't show up and then don't return texts, don't do that. Uh, some people will rely on um, lying to get out of social gatherings. That only increases the, uh, the essentially dysfunction. The problem with avoidance coping is anything you avoid, and here's one of the most important things to understand about your brain, is that anything you avoid, there's a part of the amygdala called the BLA. The BLA learns 
fear. It learns what to be frightened of. And anything you avoid, it will essentially uh, mark that thing you're avoiding as a threat. And the more you avoid it, the more threatening it becomes. So things that start out as, well, you know, I could go there, but it's going to be difficult, so I'm not going to do that. If you do avoid it, actually over time will feel like a real threatening situation. One of the examples being, you know, I used this a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about uh, fear is that if somebody after a breakup avoids going to the neighborhood of where their ex lives, at first they avoid that because it could be a little awkward stumbling upon their ex and, you know, that doesn't seem like that much fun, so they avoid the neighborhood. But then in the future, if they even think about going to that neighborhood, their heart starts to race and they start to go into a hypervigilance state. Why? Well, because the BLA neurons of the brain now have encoded uh, Greenpoint or Bushwick as a neighborhood that's unsafe. And so what used to be something that could be faced now feels like a real threat. So it's important to never use avoidance coping uh, as a tool. Uh, anything you avoid, unless it's something that you know you won't have to deal with ever again, uh, you will become more and more uh, vigilant and anxious about when you encounter it in the future. So um, masking anxiety is a very bad idea as well. Masking is referred to in certain self-help books as acting as if, acting as if you're confident. Now this sounds like good, good advice, but it's actually terrible advice. <laughs> Uh, there's actually been significant clinical studies by Bruce Hood and others that show that the more people try to act as if they're confident when they're not confident, actually the more cognitive overload happens because guess what happens? If I was actually really nervous right now, what I would have to do is, I and if I decided, okay, I have to present like I'm really comfortable talking in front of you, if I was really nervous, what I'd have to do is I'd have to, one, create a facade, a performance of looking comfortable, then I'd have to look at all of your expressions to see if you were recognizing that I was nervous. And I'd also have to constantly check my body to make sure that any sign of jitters or anxiety or nervousness was showing through. So now I've got three things I have to do to present in front of you and to be present. That leads to mounting stress, and it also fails inevitably. On the other hand, when somebody simply says, oh, I'm anxious talking in front of people or I'm anxious, I, I find social gatherings to be difficult, it actually is an immediate way to bond, but we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, a huge, uh, a huge, a uh, catalyst in social anxiety is smartphone dependence. Uh, in fact, some psychologists believe that the skyrocketing degrees of social anxiety are directly attributable to the amount of dependence we have on checking for texts, emails, and social media, Instagram, and so forth. Because the more that we are constantly driven by that dopamine rush 
of disconnecting from interpersonal interaction and seeking a form of security by disconnecting, the more we find actual vulnerable <coughs> interactions with people to be more and more unfamiliar and we become less capable of self-soothing and we find more and more the actual vulnerability of interpersonal life to be something that's scary. So the more we depend on looking at our phones at gatherings, the more it becomes difficult to actually engage with another person because if you look at a phone, you pretty much know what you're going to get. One, you're going to get a trigger release of dopamine because your brain likes looking at something that is flashing at you. Two, you're probably going to get a message or you won't get a message, but at least it'll be a, pre a pretty predictable experience. So you feel safer. And that means though, that the vagaries and uh, uh, ambiguous interactions of interacting with someone who you don't know and you have to be able to self-soothe and be able to develop distress tolerance is something that will become increasingly more difficult for you. And it also as well sends a signal to other people that you're not available. Because if you see somebody at a gathering who's looking at their phone, you unconsciously assume that they don't want to interact. And so you won't be that, that open to talking with them either. Self-medicating. This was my own personal choice. Self-medicating. Al alcohol is a significant uh, maladaptive strategy. People, of course, rely on alcohol because it raises GABA levels very efficiently. When you raise your GABA levels, you it reduces anxiety. And so that feels great. Well, I just have to have a couple of drinks. And I get that old, good old liquid courage and I can interact with people and everything will go great. Well, not so much because the more we rely on raising the level of GABA in the brain endogenously, you also disinhibit yourself, which means you become far more likely of saying or doing something that you'll regret. And also you're not actually being truly vulnerable when you're interacting with people on alcohol. But generally with people who become dependent on alcohol, they become habituated, they need more and more, and they become far more likely of acting in aggressive or antisocial ways, which only makes their core shame even worse. So it becomes a spiral that leads very quickly into a no-win situation. And it's the story very often of so many people I know who have gone into recovery. And of course, eating. Eating is a classic way of surviving social gatherings, going to the old buffet. Uh, that also, <laughs> that also uh, ups the dopamine, but it actually doesn't in any way address one's lack of felt confidence. It actually triggers greater degrees of shame because people rarely feel that great about the fact that they've eaten their way through a party. <laughs> <laughs> and very often it also leads to a sense of uh, disconnecting before we develop the tools of learning to self-soothe. Now, if that wasn't enough, maladaptive strategies that don't lead anywhere good. There's also uh, the, what happens at family gatherings, which trigger two forms of um, 
uh, maladaptive behaviors that have their own special form of hell to them. Uh, <laughs> denial. Denial are the mutual pacts where members of a family refrain from discussing all the emotional wounds that have gone on between them, the, the, uh, all the uh, microaggressions that have happened in the past to outright aggressions, there becomes this mutual pact that if it's better for us not to discuss or work through any of our issues, the idea being if we don't discuss it, somehow that will make the gathering easier. Actually, Gottman's research found that the more we don't discuss conflicts that have happened in the past, the more dysregulated and the quicker relationships fall apart. They found that couples or families that don't ever talk about issues actually have far more conflict than people who have a structured time where they discuss and at least address events that have happened in the past. The elephant in the room also leads to passive-aggressive punishing behaviors. People don't feel permitted to acknowledge what has happened, but they still feel all the displaced anger, and so they take it out on each other, but in ways that are very often, they're not even aware of how aggressive they're behaving. And of course, they're very aware, though, of how passive-aggressive the other people are treating them. One of the best moments of my, uh, I love this moment because it was for me hilarious. It was actually deeply mortifying for my mother, but it was a great um, example of um, the elephant in the room and uh, passive aggressive behavior. So my, my mom was Jewish. My dad grew up in a Catholic family that was before he became a Buddhist, and uh, his mother was deeply anti-Semitic. Um, as anti-Semitic as they come, he used to joke that she was a Cossack, and if you don't know Cossacks were, they used to hunt down Jews. So, um, And so when my dad was marrying my mom at the Unitarian Church, my grandmother bribed him tried to bribe him not to marry my mom, but she was an extremely frugal woman as well as being anti-Semitic. So she was a real winner. Uh, she, uh, she, she offered him $50 if she wouldn't marry, in quote, that Jew. So, so my father, who thought the whole thing was hilarious, of course, informed my mom of all the little things. And this... My grandmother used to every Christmas predictively come with another Bible and shove it at me when my mother wasn't looking. So every Christmas there was this ritual of my mom asking if I wanted to keep the Bible and I would say, no, please get rid of it. And she would merrily shove it in the, the trash. But anyway, there was one, she never talked about this with my grandmother. I can't believe I'm giving you this whole story, but anyway. Uh, she never talked about it with my grandmother. There was never any discussing the elephant in the room like, <laughs> you tried to bribe my husband not to marry me on my fucking wedding day. What the fuck is the matter with you? None of that was ever talked about. So there was one time where my grandmother, I, I don't know what happened to her. She must have been around 
90, she decided, decided to finally, after my dad browbeated her, to make a present for my mom at Christmas. So she baked this big loaf of something. I don't know what it was. It was this deeply passive-aggressive, you know, horrible-looking brown loaf of Russian bread that, you know... And my mom, when she picked it up and realized who it was from, started shaking it. She opened it up, and she was overcome with her own anxiety. And right in front of my grandmother, threw it in the trash and ran out of the room. (laughs) So I thought that was hilarious. I was like rolling on the, the ground laughing. But the kind of the level of dysfunction that can develop when people don't discuss obvious past transgressions and aggressions and uh, behaviors can mount over the years until you wind up with entirely ridiculous, dysregulated behaviors. Um, Additionally, when people go home to family systems, uh, there's a strong tendency towards regression. Uh, regression is what's triggered when uh, individuals feel infantilized, marginalized, unseen. They regress back to earlier maladaptive coping strategies. They become either grandiose, histrionic, or antisocial. They start relying on the childhood coping strategies to get attention. And so what winds up happening is the old emotional wounds are not addressed in any way. The dysfunction remains ever stronger, and people then come away even more. There's, if you've ever uh, met anybody, for instance, in recovery, they have their own set of horror stories about what it's like to go back to a family system without the aid of alcohol as a... Uh, an attempt as an anxiolytic. So those are some of the behaviors that don't work. Just a refresher. Any form of avoidance coping, masking your anxiety, pretending that you're confident when you're not, using a phone as a way to present, uh, to feel secure in large gatherings, self-medicating through alcohol or eating, denying, not addressing the wounds of the past and regression that comes from not taking care of yourself and bringing a buffer. So what do we do? How do we address social anxiety in a skillful way? Well, the first way, we'll be doing this in the meditation, but um, comfort and confidence actually starts largely somatically from the body up. It's impossible to talk yourself into being confident because when your amygdala is activated when your brain is literally in a state of hypervigilance, your amygdala does not understand words or ideas. So trying to say, oh, but I am such a lovable person, trying to tell yourself that, or I, I, I should be confident, I've been to other parties, why am I nervous now? Shooting yourself uh, doesn't work because the midbrain that actually triggers anxiety is utterly unaware of uh, most thoughts. The only thing that it is aware of at times is you can trigger anxiety by visualizing something unpleasant, but words rarely 
activate any form of comfort. So the whole idea of um, looking yourself uh, or talking to yourself into comfort uh, is not actually a way to start. But relaxing the body, getting into, a, learning to get into a body that is essentially holds a degree of confidence in it, relaxing the breath, opening the chest, soft belly, essentially uh, going into the state that you're in when you are the most confident, that's the by far and away the most efficient way to go into any setting that is triggering. The second is acknowledge, don't perform. So if there's situations where you do feel anxious, do not ever try to act as if you're not anxious. The Bruce Hood's research found that when, uh, I'm not sure if it's his or the, he, he mentioned it in his, his, uh, his book, but he talks about research that showed when people acknowledge they're anxious, there are significant physiological markers that immediately go down, including breath rates, uh, skin salience that indicates stress, cortisol levels, etc. So the more you simply say, oh boy, I hate large parties like this, but this is a close friend, so I'm here, uh, it helps you in so many different ways. One, it allows you to establish an, an authentic relationship with someone very quickly because you're acknowledging an emotion that is true. And two, you no longer have the cognitive overload because the moment you acknowledge that you're anxious, you don't have to anymore monitor how you appear to others. You don't have to monitor your own body. You don't have to put on a show. You can just be anxious. That is an enormous load. And two, there's an old great saying in the Al-Anon program, which is rejection is protection. And it's very true. If somebody looks at you and they go, anxious at a social gathering? I don't know how anybody could be that way. <laughs> that is the quickest way of telling you, okay, get the fuck out of this conversation. This person is never meant to be a friend or anybody that you want to connect with. So if somebody gives you a weird look simply because you've been vulnerable, it's the surest, most wonderful sign that tells you to skip them and move on. And feel free, uh, as a Buddhist teacher, to just disconnect and be rude and get the hell out. Because if somebody, I go all the time uh, to when I have to go to social gatherings, and the first words out of my mouth are when I'm in a group is like, boy, these kinds of gatherings make me uncomfortable. And I rarely get any kind of weird look. Uh, maybe it's because I already get weird looks. The <laughs> way I look. Uh, but it's a real way to start a conversation and to start uh, permission to actually talk about things that are true if you start out by being a little bit disclosing. It's not like you're telling somebody that, oh, you know, I have a, uh, I have irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> you know, it's not really vulnerable. 70% now of everybody under the age of, of 35 literally scores of varying degrees of social anxiety. So it's about as milk toast as, you know, saying, boy, I like to eat pizza and watch TV. I mean, um, 
put the phone away. Every moment spent disengaging makes it harder to engage. Literally, there's research that shows every hour people spend on the phone is a half hour less they spent actually interacting with other human beings. And it also plays a significant role in making it more difficult to actually vulnerably connect with other people. Be realistic about your capabilities. Feel permitted to leave when you want. People actually make social gatherings far more difficult simply by feeling the need to stay for long periods because it's a family gathering or a friend gathering. And so they actually exacerbate the stress and make it more likely that they'll avoid in the future gatherings because they push themselves too hard. I have a wonderful habit of going to each gathering with a uh, bookend, which is, if you don't know what that means, it's an excuse that will allow me to leave. And generally, I don't put it in the negative, like, oh, you know, I have to leave. I, I generally po- phrase it in the positive. I'm so glad I could make it to your thing because I have something else that was really important, but I pushed it back so that I could be here, blah, blah, blah. So if you hear me saying that to you. <laughs> but generally, I don't, I don't lie as a practice, so I actually will book something else. <laughs> Even if it's a god-awful you know, music event, which, you know... Uh, you have to do sometimes to get out of it. <laughs> 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 Bringing a buffer is uh, a tried and tested tool, which is essentially if a family gathering or some kind of gathering is too much, bribe if you have to a friend to come with you. People who are dysregulated tend to still put on social masks when they are around uh, people that they don't know. The dysfunction only comes out when the family system is intact, but not when there's a stranger. So it's amazing how you bring a friend and the family members that are normally untenable suddenly put on a show that, and your friend goes, I don't know what the problem is. (laughs) I I expected your father to immediately, you know, you're like, trust me. What you've just seen is the greatest show ever put on. And then um, seek one-on-ones, otherwise known as take hostages. Uh, Great strategy. Monitoring... You know, all the people at a party uh, taking in that tends to exacerbate uh, or create even greater sense of anxiety. If you can find one person, just essentially ask them everything about their life. Spend, (laughs) Spend a lot of time with them, get to know them extremely well, and then leave. What you've done is you've actually just connected with a human being. You've actually increased the possibility of making a new friend. And frankly, the idea that much is going to be accomplished in most social gatherings is uh, a bit of a ruse. 
So, so long as you're there, you show up, and you actually connect with another human being, you've done the work. It's far easier to try to meet one person than to try to put on a performance or look comfortable in front of a whole group of people. So find the one person that seems the smartest and just hang out with them. (laughs) Compare and despair. Compare and despair is observing other people's performances in social gatherings and assume that, oh my God, I feel so anxious here. Look at all those people. They look so comfortably. What the fuck is the matter with me? Trust me you can't actually reach into their brains. And it's so easy when we have felt degrees of core shame or any uh, exaggerated self-consciousness to look at other people and believe that they're having the times of their life and everything's effortless. Try to, if possible, remind yourself that one out of every two people out there is dreading being there as much as you are. So anyway, that's a whole bunch. Just a review. Learn to self-soothe your body. That's what we're going to be doing in the meditation. Acknowledge. Don't perform. So just have a very simple sentence. Boy, I find these gatherings at times difficult. Uh, It'll be a helpful way to get to know people. Put the phone away. It actually makes it far more difficult to actually interact with other human beings. The drink and the alcohol, the drink and the eating do not work. Be realistic about your capabilities. Feel permitted just to show up and leave. Don't try to put on a good show and stay a long time. Bring a buffer whenever possible. Seek one-on-ones with individuals, so much easier to have a good time when you're just focusing on one person than taking in an entire, because that activates your right hemisphere, far more likely to create felt sense of insecurity. So, thanks for listening. Hope something was interesting. And now what we're going to do is we're going to practice developing confidence through meditation. So just reminding you when the time is right to uh, after the meditation and if you, you know, we'll have questions. But whenever you do leave, remember to throw money in the basket so that we can support ourselves. And now find a really comfortable seated position. And let's just start by developing the self-soothing tools, which will be very useful at any gathering. We're going to deactivate our amygdalas as much as we can and lower our cortisol levels by changing the way we breathe. So take a nice complete in-breath and if you want lift your shoulders up like you're lifting two really heavy bags and you have to lift them up carry them through an airport and they weigh each 75 pounds and you're lifting them and your shoulders are tight and then breathe out and drop those bags onto the check-in you don't have to carry them around anymore so you just relax 
your shoulders and we're going to open up that chest. That's where an open up chest means it's very difficult to feel vulnerable, the more open and expansive and relaxed. Tones of vagal vagus nerve sends a nice message up to the brain that says you're safe. And then now another deep, complete in-breath, pulling in the belly or pushing it out, whatever you prefer. Just do something that makes the belly tight or contracted or uncomfortable. And then as you breathe out, soft belly, just the softest belly you can imagine. No tightness. And then for the third cluster of vagal nerves, along with the chest and the belly, as you breathe in, squinch all the muscles in the face. Just make an ugly little pinched face. Lock your jaw. Tighten the micro-muscles around the eyes. Pinch the nose. And then as you breathe out, And take a moment just to, if there's any tendency to clench your jaw, to lock the teeth, see if you can relax the jaw. <coughs> In one famous study, they simply had people hold the jaw and the mouth in a different way, and just by that subtle shift, you actually can regulate mood swings and diminish or at least regulate some degree negative affects. So just try to relax the jaw, soften the belly, and keep the chest open by keeping the shoulders pulled back so that there's a lot of space. Those three steps, those three simple steps over time send a very significant message to the midbrain saying that you're safe. And keep that full, complete in-breath and that very long, relaxed out-breath, not pushing out the breath, just relaxing all of these states are conducive. And just allowing all the sounds to move through awareness. Imagine your mind is a little bit like an extremely spacious house, but there's two screen doors where the breeze can move through and nothing gets trapped. So sound can flow through, but nothing... There's no place for it to land. So no matter what you hear, it's just a breeze passing through. It has no effect.
and try to get as close as you can to the actual sensations that are comprising this present moment. So, the sense of contact with the ground, just the awareness of your body breathing, the sounds flowing through, even the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. It's really relaxing into this moment. So for the first part of this meditation, we're just going to be sitting and just practicing being present, self-soothing whenever something stressful pops up into the mind, just return to the actual sensations that are present and relax the breath again, deep in-breath, long out-breath, once again, If you notice any stressful thought, open up the chest, soften the belly, relax the muscles in the face, all the things we did. This is the very basic self-soothing. We're just going to practice being with life without running or avoiding or checking out. Meditation is synonymous with not only developing self-soothing protocols, but also diminishing anxiety. Just be with life as it is. And any time your brain starts to add anything, a thought, just remind it that we'll be doing some visualization later. Right now it's it's time to take a little break and just relax back into the actual sensations.
So at this point, just keep your body really relaxed. Make sure that your belly remains soft and your chest open. You need to take a moment and just, again, butterfly your shoulders so that your chest is really open, your shoulders are behind. And now we're going to do a very simple but effective visualization practice. What I'd like you to do is imagine yourself in some setting where there's other people present, maybe two or three, that you're with. And I'd like you to visualize yourself interacting with these individuals in a very impactful, positive way that really actualizes some of your highest sense of yourself, who you aspire to be, someone who's helpful, someone who has something to offer, insights, creativity, someone who's caring, supportive. And in this visualization practice, it's very important that you just feel free to mostly have a sense of the other people in this scene looking at you with a sense of appreciation. People either entirely imagined or people that you, that are based on actual real friends or acquaintances looking at you with a sense of encouragement, acceptance, regard. You can, if you want, visualize an actual setting where you've been helpful to a friend. But it's just as useful. The brain can actually emotional circuits can heal just as much through visual practices. So just imagine a scene where you're being very impactful in a positive way with others. And then as you imagine how these individuals would look at you with a sense of understanding, appreciation, just see if you can feel in your body what it's like to interact with others in a really meaningful way that you feel is beneficial. Where do you feel esteem in your own body? For many people I work with, it's in the chest. There's a sense of ease, even of energy flowing in the sternum or in the dead center of the chest. There's a sense of strength, 
and confidence that's in the body that's very often in the chest maybe the belly becomes a little softer and just feel free to visualize any scenario where you're interacting with others (coughs) real or imagined in a positive way and just see if you can find that physical sense of both strength resilience comfort and then finally what I'd like you to do while you feel any sense of somatic or physical confidence I'd like you to now bring into your mind an image of yourself as you might appear in a mirror what we're doing is linking your self-representation with positive physical states people who have attachment wounds or struggle with anxiety very often their self-representation is linked with stressful body states so what we're doing is linking your self-representation with a very positive relaxed state the more you do this then when you enter into social gatherings just bring the body back into this state whatever state you're feeling right now So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and when you hear the sound take your time very slowly open your eyes look at the ground and just bring any sense of physical ease that you've cultivated in the last half hour just bring it with you into the rest of the evening so don't get so pulled into the world around us and into the world of our thoughts that we leave this awareness of the body the more aware you are of your body the more you can relax it, tone it and employ it as a way to meet your own desired states of being with others